All right, everyone. Welcome to Coffee Break Bible Study on this 15th day of December, the week of Advent 3, 10 days before the Nativity. How about that? Psalm 85 is the psalm for the week out of the hymnal. Psalm 85. We'll pray that psalm responsively by a half verse using from the congregation at prayer the, um, the verse for the week. Psalm 51, verse 5. I was thinking there would be a fall off in attendance. I thought you'd all be afraid. When I left here quarter to 10 last night, it was absolutely pouring. Yep. Yep. So I used the big umbrella to get out to my vehicle. Is that how you say it, Bob? Vehicle? Vehicle. Yeah. Vehicle. <laughs> Everyone's here this morning because their furnaces aren't working. <laughs> Well, if you, need, if you need to get warm, you just let me know. We'll do, you can come and join us for some shoveling. We've got the handicapped area open for you. We have to shovel for Larry because he's kind of handicapped, you know. And, uh. <laughs> All right, so Psalm 85 is a psalm for the week. We'll pray it responsibly by half verse. Uh, psalm 51, verse 5 on the congregation of prayer, our antiphon. It's chosen because this week in the Catechism, fifth petition, forgive us our trespasses. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Spirit and the Church cry out. Come, Lord Jesus. All those who await His appearance pray. Come, Lord Jesus. The whole creation pleads. Come, Lord Jesus. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Christian church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation. And put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord. And grant us your salvation. 
Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. That glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Faithfulness springs up from the ground. And righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good. And our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him. And make his footsteps away. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. O Lord Jesus Christ, at your coming, in the flesh you sent your messenger to prepare your way before you. Grant that the ministers and stewards of your mysteries may likewise so prepare and make ready your way by turning the hearts of the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, that at your second coming to judge the world, we may be found acceptable in your sight. For you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. What is the fifth petition? And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. What does this mean? We pray in this petition that our Father in heaven would not look at our sins, or deny our prayer because of them. We are neither worthy of the things for which we pray, nor have we deserved them, but we ask that he would give them all to us by grace, for we daily sin much and surely deserve nothing but punishment. So we too will sincerely forgive and gladly do good to those who sin against us. What is the sixth petition? and lead us not into temptation. What does this mean? God tempts no one. We pray in this petition that God would guard and keep us. Devil, the world, and our sinful nature may not deceive us or mislead us into false belief, despair, and other great shame and vice. Although we are attacked by these things, we pray that we may finally overcome them and win the victory. Let us pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, because of sin, we are completely unworthy of every grace and blessing. And yet, for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, you forgive our sins and your ears are open to our prayers. Destroy every temptation that bids us not to trust in you so that we are not deceived or misled into false belief, despair, and other great shame and vice. Although daily in this life we are attacked by these things, we pray that by your grace we may overcome them and win the victory. Into your hands we commend all of the sick of our congregation and extended family especially Bob Piper, 
in serious condition and recover, recovering from a head injury in the hospital. Reverend John Leiter hospitalized with pneumonia. Reverend Dwayne Schneider, who has entered into hospice care. Cindy Runau, recovering from hip replacement surgery. Mary Berenger, from side effects of cancer treatment. Bob Rothy, Peyton Locklear, Jamelyn Martin, Kathy Miller, Heather Peters, and Josiah Berenger, all in treatment for various cancers. Bring healing according to your will. Sustain them in their affliction with your grace and grant them your peace. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Lord Jesus Christ, we implore you to hear our prayers and to lighten the darkness of our hearts by your gracious visitation. For you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Taught by our Lord and trusting his promises, we are bold to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Hymn 344. On Jordan's bank the Baptist cry announces that the Lord is nigh. Awake and hearken, for he brings glad tidings of the King of kings. Then cleanse me every from sin, make straight the way of God within, and let us all our hearts prepare for Christ to come and enter there. We hail thee as our Savior, Lord, our refuge and our great reward. Without thy grace we waste away like flowers that wither and decay. Lay on the sick thy healing hand and make the fallen strong to stand. Show us the glory of thy face till beauty springs every place. All praise eternal Son to thee, whose advent sets thy people free, while with the Father we adore 
and Holy Spirit evermore. Amen. Matthew chapter 18. We will have Coffee Break Bible Study next week. That would be November, uh, November, December 22nd. So we will have Coffee Break Bible Study next week. Um, we will not, there's no school next week, so there'll be no daily uh, chapel. So the first scheduled event next Thursday would be Coffee Break Bible Study, okay, at 9.30. Um, I'll ask, this is something that Jim Weber always uh, wanted to do, so I'll, I'll ask it. Um, we have often gone, those who wanted to go to like the machine shed or something, in December for lunch, um, or it could be some other place, I suppose. Uh, anyone... Uh, Interested in that for next Thursday? <coughs> Raise your hand. The 22nd? Is the machine shed good for that? Okay, so you got variety enough. All right, uh, I'll um, let, raise your hand again if you're one, two, three, four, five. 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. All right. I will um, we'll give them a heads up around 20 or something like that. A week's notice? They don't want our business? Huh? So we'll see about that. Then, um, well, sorry about that, Connie. Uh, those platforms are in here because um, they are for lessons and carols on Sunday afternoon at 3 o'clock. So the entire chancel will be transformed um, so that all of the choirs, literally all of the choirs, are in the chancel and singing from the chancel. Our chancel, since the remodel and with the um, tile and the tile down the center, it really speaks well. Um, one of the main reasons we're doing it is we are only doing lessons and carols once. It's a little tough on people's schedules and the kids and so forth. But by doing it once and singing from the front, there's about 75 seats that then open up in the choir area that the congregation can sit in. And then if there is even overflow into the narthex, you're not seeing the backsides of the choir when they stand up. So um, choirs speak out. So I, I, I would encourage you to come uh, 3 o'clock on Sunday afternoon. Or if you're, you have some previous commitment and you want to see how the sausage is made, you're welcome to come between 8.30 and 11 if you want to pop in on Saturday morning to listen to the rehearsal, okay? So I run choir rehearsal like my father-in-law would run his basketball uh, practices, you know? Like, kind of like the Vince Lombardi of 
choir directors or <laughs> you were no nonsense right yeah oh yeah <laughs> is the pope catholic all right all right matthew chapter 8 oh and the other thing that this um nativity set we just we just unboxed it yesterday it's not set up yet you can see the figures out there so um we needed to see what it looked like it's not it's not set up in the position that it will be, so just so you know. Yeah. So we're in Matthew chapter 18 in the fourth discourse of Jesus. And uh, we talked significantly about church discipline in verse 15 through 20. But the context of that was in this entire discourse is about the foundation of the Christian faith and life and that of the church being in God's undeserved forgiveness and mercy in Jesus. So, who is the greatest? The one who receives the Lord Jesus and his forgiveness. He sets a child in the midst. What is the greatest of offense would be to do something that robs the person of Jesus and his forgiveness. That's the greatest offense. And the parable of the lost sheep shows our Lord's disposition towards his baptized, that he goes after them to bring them back. And that's the purpose then, it's kind of, how does that happen? Well, he going after them to bring them back is what that church discipline, go to your brother who has sinned against the faith by impenitence and say, sister, come back. And if he, he or she refuses to hear, tell it to another, come back. Return in repentance and faith. That's the purpose of the going to the bread. And then if they won't, hear them, well, they, they can no longer come to communion, but we continue to treat them as evangelistic prospects. You know, let them be uh, to you like a heathen and a tax collector. To agree, when two or three agree, we talked about the agreement in the Word of God, in the, what the law says that calls us to repentance and a knowledge of our sin, do we confess rightly? And then to hear that word of forgiveness spoken to the broken and contrite. So wherever two or three are gathered together in my name in that kind of confessional conversation, I am in the midst of them forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. That that is still the topic here is made clear then by what follows in verse 21, which is where we pick up today. Someone's phone ringeth. Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And that brother there in verse 21 connects to the brother in verse 15, if your brother sins. And remember, we talked about this last week. This is not so much dealing with a personal infraction or sin. But Peter's question 
as an apostolic minister. You know, you are all my brothers and sisters. So how often shall I forgive my brothers and sisters in the congregation? Up to seven times? So if Angela comes to confession seven times, okay. She comes eight or nine, that's enough. We're going to cut her off because she's abusing the grace of God. Peter and the other apostles, witnessing the ministry of Jesus, realize by what they're witnessing, this, this forgiveness and grace is super abundant. Is there, is there no limit to it? So that's lurking behind Peter's question. How often shall I forgive? You know, as a minister, by extension, us as baptized believers. How often? And then he, he offers his own suggestion, you know, up to seven times, which would be significant. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven, which would be what, 490? So 490 is the limit. Is that the point? No, it means without limit. A broken and a contrite heart, these, O oh God, you will not despise. 23, therefore, now the conjunction therefore connects to everything that has preceded, and particularly 21 and 22. And the servant in the parable of the unmerciful servant can be thought of in two related ways. Any minister of the gospel, in the narrow sense, is a servant of the king, the Lord, and any Christian in the broader sense. Okay, so both can be inferred here. The reason I start with the minister is because unless the minister comes to know and believe that he himself is what St. Paul confessed about himself, he cannot really be very faithful as a minister of the gospel. What did St. Paul confess about himself? Things that I want to do, I don't do. He said that, yep, and that illustrates this, in the chief of sinners. I am the chief of sinners. Believing that as a minister teaches the minister to depend upon the forgiveness and grace of Jesus alone. Only then can he minister to other sinners. Do you know I've had pastors <laughs> confess in candid moments I had no idea there was this much sin in the congregation. <laughs> Newsflash. I had no idea there was so much struggle with. So, therefore, this kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. Now, who is this king representative of? God, God. 
He wants to settle accounts. So forgiveness of sins is not based on never mind theology. Do you know what never mind theology is? That's the, that's the conception of forgiveness as being God just saying, never mind, it's okay. No, there is divine justice. But the divine justice is that which is wrought here by the cross. For a debt that was too great for anyone to be able to repay, except the one who is the Son of God, who makes the sin his own. So the canceling of the debt or the forgiveness of sins is on account of Christ, before we get into this parable. That's what we believe as Christians. So if you insist upon resting from him the authority to forgive and placing it upon your own works or the works of others, it is the greatest offense because you're taking away, you're robbing Jesus of that which only Jesus can do, which is make atonement for sin and forgive sin. Okay? So the refusal to receive the forgiveness is an offense to the justice that God wrought in Christ. Okay. So a certain king, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, a talent is a, is a large uh, sum. Maybe the best way to explain what a talent is, is a denarius is how much? A day's wage. Um, so when you go into the second servant, let's see, let me find the Uh, verse 28, that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. So that would be like a th a wages for a third of the year or something like that, right? 10,000 talents is 600,000 times more than the second servant. Did you get that? 600,000 times more than was owed by the other servant. Okay? So this first servant owed the master 10,000 talents. Verse 25, but, he but as he was not able to pay, for who could pay such an amount? It's sort of like, you know, we get opportunity to pay the national debt. It's impossible. His master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children, and all he had, and that payment be made, which of course could not satisfy the debt, 
but it was punishment for being unable to satisfy the debt. Do you ever think about that? That uh, punishment for being unable to make payment, make restitution. Since you cannot make restitution, you will be imprisoned. Until the debt's paid off. But, and, which is never. <laughs> That's right. So how can you earn anything? So you're simply in prison. So there is no exit. The great existential no exit. The servant, therefore, fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Now I've always found that verse 26 um, is great and not so great. Because he begs on the one hand for compassion. That's the great part. But what's not the great part is, I will pay you all. It's sort of like the prodigal son. It's great when he says, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare and I perish with hunger? I will go to my father, I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. That's great. That's a proper confession. But then he adds this. This is not great. Make me like one of your hired servants. As if he had to earn his way, work his way back into his father's favor. You follow? No, you're, you're restored to sonship or you're not restored at all. You're not restored to a position of the father's slave but you're restored to sonship in the parable of the prodigal son. So here, have patience with me and I will pay you all. So he rightly prays for compassion, but he can't pay all. However, what has God done in Christ for the sins of the whole world? He's paid it all. He's paid it all. But that servant, uh, so the master uh, of the servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. So notice how verse 27 answers verse 26. Have compassion with me, I will pay you all. But the master has compassion, good, but releases him from the debt, which means there's, there's, no death. there's <laughs> nothing Left. to be Paid. If he releases him from the debt, there's nothing to be paid. Okay? He releases him from the debt, there's nothing to be paid. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And in terms of the degree of debt and the two relationships, there may have been some possibility for him to make payment on a hundred denarii, would have taken a long time. And I want you to think of this, the 
infractions that we commit against one another certainly aren't to be ignored, but compared to the full weight of our sin and sinfulness before God, they're nothing. Sometimes I've thought this when accused of terrible sin in the eyes of the accuser. You think I'm guilty of that? Okay. What I'm, what I'm really guilty of is far worse than what you're accusing me of. <laughs> How about, how about that? Anyway, his fellow servant fell down, begged him, saying, have patience with me and I will pay you all. Which is essentially the same thing that the first servant asked of the master. And he would not, flat out refused, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So the master remitted the debt canceled the debt of the first servant, 10,000 talents. And that forgiven servant refused to release this man from the debt. What does the debt refer to? The debt refers to sin. So he refuses to remit the sin and its punishments, but rather throws him into prison. Now, this is in part an illustration of if your brother sins, go and show him his fault. Because look, verse 31, so when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were grieved. So in verse 31, the grief of the fellow servants is parallel to if your brother sins against you. It's not you know, back in verse 15, it's not about personal infraction, but the grief caused in a minister's heart, let's say, or a fellow Christian's heart, let's say, when another baptized child turns away from Christ and falls into impenitence and unbelief. That doesn't make me happy. Did it make you happy, Mark? To see someone turn away from Christ? Hardly. Hardly. So if your brother sins against you, it causes us grief. It's an infraction against the whole body of Christ for whom forgiveness is at the center as we pray this week in the fifth petition. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. All right, so when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Now, that's certainly a reference to prayer. Dr. Corby used to say that we are called to be, I mean, he's echoing St. Peter here, priests, royal priests, called out of the darkness of sin into the marvelous light of gospel. What do priests do? They pray. They talk to God about their neighbor. We would prefer to talk to one another about our neighbor. It's called gossip. It's never gossip to talk to God about your neighbor. You know? and, and priests <coughs> sacrifice 
They offer the sacrifices of love. They offer the sacrifices of, bro of a broken and contrite heart. And then priests teach. They teach the gospel <coughs> of God's mercy. So these fellow servants grieved in their heart over the impenitence of their fellow servant, came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, you wicked servant. Now, why was he wicked? Because he owed the master 10,000 talents? No, not really. I mean, yeah, if that's sin, then he's sinful and he's wicked. But the greatest wickedness is not the 10,000 talents that were owed and then forgiven. The greatest wickedness is the refusal to walk in that forgiveness, the light of that forgiveness, to let go of that sin. Yesterday's um, epistle from First uh, John. So his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. And remember, his begging was crying out to the master for compassion. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And the answer is yes. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. But if we say we have no sin, which is what this master or this servant is saying, then we accuse God of being a liar, and his truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, I know that's in John's epistle that I'm quoting from now, but it is an amplification, you know, of kind of what's going on here in the metaphor of the parable. So when he refuses to have compassion or pity on his fellow servant, he is denying what? He's denying God's forgiveness. He's denying Christ. That's the sin spoken of in verse 15 through 20, if your brother sins. So if your brother denies Christ, if your, bro if your brother denies Christ in impenitence and unbelief, if your brother turns away from Christ's forgiveness, either for his own individual self-righteous impenitence or by holding the sins of others against them and refusing to remit them. Go and, show, go and show him his fault because he is in a state of spiritual peril. You see how the go and show him his fault, take others with you, then tell it to the church is all about this. It's not about etiquette on how to get a pound of flesh from the guy that has ticked you off. Okay, Mark. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because, because he works, you know, just as, just as the gift of life, you know, human life, it comes from God 
but it's through us, procreation, we're taken up into that. So the gift of salvation, it comes from God, but it is through the church and her ministry and that of brothers and sisters in Christ, the mutual conversation and consolation of Christian brothers, as the Schmall called articles says. So denying the opportunity, yeah. All right, so I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him, which of course could never be done. So the anger of the master, this is why I told you before about excommunication. Excommunication is not done for specific sins. You know, Larry is excommunicated because he punched Pastor in the mouth. No, um, not for that sin. Don't get any ideas now. Yeah. Yeah, there's, it's impossible to be otherwise. Um, but rather, because of the sin of impenitence and the rejection of Christ, and in this case, it's in the, re the refusal to forgive the one who had, uh, who had sinned against God. And so his master was angry and delivered him to the tortures until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father also will do to each of you, do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespass. So, um, again, the, the sin here is the violation of Christ's forgiveness, of Christ's grace in self-righteous impenitence and unbelief, which you have in the, the first servant. Okay. The other, uh, um, there's, the, the lovely thing about parables is it teaches you to meditate to think about uh, what is sometimes called the analogy of faith. Do you know what that refers to? Um, you can prove anything that's false by ripping Bible passages out of context and insist, you know, uh, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. You know, so under that I mean, if we were to take that without understanding the context, we would all come to church with no hands. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. We'd all come with gouged out eyes and without hands. So you can, you can prove anything. Judas went out and hanged himself. Go thou and do likewise. You know, I mean, you can, when you rip passages out of context, you can prove anything. The analogy of faith is how the totality of the scriptures works together. It's what caused Luther to say, and scripture interprets scripture, caused him to say, you know, if you come upon a passage that you think is thrusting you back on yourself for your own salvation rather than Christ, it's not teaching that. I don't care what you think it's teaching, but it's not teaching that. And he says that because the whole breadth of scripture says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. It is not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So the analogy of faith is, is how, things, how things work. When you're in John's gospel and you hear Jesus 
giving deference to the Father. I don't do anything but the Father, what the Father says. Um, I had a question recently, doesn't that violate the Athanasian Creed, where it says none is greater or less than another and so forth? No, it's talking about the relationship between the Father and the Son, and particularly in the Son's state of humiliation as he lives by faith in his Father and so forth. All right, that was a long uh, diatribe on the analogy of faith, but you look at this, this parable of the unmerciful servant and how, as I suggest, it gives us the opportunity, like all parables, to think about the faith. And there's a number of things as I go back through parables that they cause me to think about. And this parable, I've already mentioned it, but I, I want to underscore it again. The greatest offense to God, what causes him anger, is to reject his son and the atonement of Christ what he did. Because the canceling of the debt is the payment, the atonement of Christ. So, he, in other words, he wasn't angry over the 10,000 talents as much as he was angry with that fellow servant for having rejected the atonement. Okay. So, to cause one to, to think about that and, and other things. Uh, other comments or questions you want to bring up with respect to this parable? Mark? Matthew's Gospel, and feel free to disagree here. Matthew's Gospel, more so than the other Gospels, seems to uh, mitigate against the universal salvation. Uh, uh, against universalism. Uh, it, well, not universal salvation, but against, um, against the idea that all are saved. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, there is universal grace that Christ died for all sins. So you're not saying that. But. Well, I think so. I think in the sense that, you know, is it possible to lose one's faith? Uh, yes. So once saved, always saved. It certainly speaks against that. Okay. Um, as it is a strong warning against the rejection of the atonement of Christ. Susan. So the last verse, if you don't forgive your dad. All right, now. With what you just said. You have, you have your Greek before you? Is the word heart in verse 35? Yeah, what's the word? It's where we get you cardiologists? Cardion. Cardion, okay. What is the heart the seat of? Faith. Faith. 
I think oftentimes, Susan, we confuse forgiveness with feelings. Emotion. Emotion. Nothing more than feelings. I mean, do you think it's possible for a, a wife whose husband was brutally murdered to be pretty sad for quite a long time about what happened to her husband? Yeah, do you think that's possible? That she would have those emotions? So, to follow the logic of your question, Susan, would be, then obviously she doesn't forgive, and obviously she is then damned, because she is angry, and she's super sad about this, and she's even felt the emotion of hatred toward the man. Let's make it a woman. We've got to do, we've got to equal time, right? The woman who killed... <laughs> Who murdered her? Who murdered the woman who murdered her husband? Okay. Forgiving from the heart. The heart is the seat of faith. According to faith, we forgive. We can't do it by ourselves. Right, but what my my point here, Bonnie, is it's according to faith. Can you control your emotions? You know, are you Vulcans? <laughs> no. Mr. Spock, I am in control of my emotions. I am in control of my emotions. Who can do this? Okay. So there is, there is, to forgive from the heart is to forgive according to one's faith. If I told you, would you believe this? There are people in the con I'll just I'll just put it in a hypothetical, okay? There are pastors of congregations, that's true, right? And and they have those pastors when they look on their congregation, they have people in the congregation that they like more than others. Do you think that's possible? Yes. I'm just speaking hypothetically. Yep. Right? Hypothetically. There are those they, that he likes more than others. Absolutely. Because he's a human being, right? But he forgives all from the heart. From what? From the seat of faith. The heart is the seat of faith. According to the faith, he remits sin. Okay? I am bound as a pastor, to do that in my ordination. And as Christians, we are bound to forgive from the heart. There's a difference between, you know, having the gamut of emotional, you know, some of you are more emotional than others. How many of you are so terribly emotional that you can't even, no, don't yet, don't answer. <laughs> Some of you, how many of you have no emotions, you know, okay? How many of you are Vulcans, okay? So there, there's a difference between um, the emotion that arises out of hurts and pains that we experience in our life and laying them before the Lord, you know, the, rejoice in the Lord always, again I say rejoice, 
Let your gentleness be known to all. The Lord is at hand. In everything, by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. So what do we, what do we pray in our prayers? Do we, this is, that's the epistle coming for this, this fourth Sunday in Advent. Is our prayers, dear Lord, Heavenly Father, I give thanks to you that I'm not bothered by a thing anymore. I'm not troubled by anything that anyone has ever done to me. I'm not sure I even need your grace any longer. I mean, is that our prayers? Or is it rather, Lord God, Heavenly Father, I daily sin much. I feel the weaknesses of my flesh. My emotions get the best of me. I struggle to forgive John Doe, Larry Martin, whatever. <laughs> Help me. Rescue me. Okay? So the, 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 let your requests be made known to God. What are we praying about? Are we not praying about our own weaknesses as well as the weaknesses of others? Are we not praying that we be kept in the faith? So there's a difference between being beset with emotions that make us feel as if we're not forgiving. Because if I forgave, wouldn't I just be happy and cheerful all the time? You would hope that would happen. But I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. Some people, it's not always the case. Okay? Or if you're going to base your love for your spouse on whether or not you are able to maintain the emotional high of having fallen in love, so is that the measure as to whether or not you love from the heart? It can't be. Look at Jerry's laughing. You know? It can't be. Okay? So the heart is the seat of faith. And for us as Christians, what we believe is the Word. The Word of God. We don't, we're not trusting in our emotions. We're trusting in what the Word says. So you can wake up in the morning or you can go through a day and you might feel like C-R-A-P. That doesn't change the promises that God made to you in your baptism to which faith clings. So there's a difference with have, between having emotions and struggling, and then it grieves us. I can tell you right now, if you're sad or grieved about, you know, it's so hard for me to forget what they've done, I know I should, and that it bothers me, the fact that you're bothered by it indicates that you have the desire to forgive which flows out of faith. There's a difference between that and, God damn that person, I want them in hell! If that's the disposition, then come and talk to me because that is extremely destructive to one's faith and salvation. There's a huge difference between the two. But do not base whether or not you're a Christian on how you feel. Don't do it. It's quicksand. It's absolute quicksand. Faith never is in curvatus est, curved in. It is always extra nos, outside of self, in the objective word. That's the safety. Okay, that's the safety. This is the name by which you will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. That's the safety. Mark. This reminds me of a, a good friend of mine who just moved from Anglicanism to Lutheranism and he's 
serving a parish out in Virginia, and he's really he's really giving giving them Luther. And this I found this interesting in that he said people in this parish from 45 and up they're eating Luther up. You know the objective word. You know they're just eating that up. But the millennials who are kind of more experiential in, in learning, they're they're struggling with Luther's sense of uh, the objective word. Hmm. Interesting. Okay, um, how, um, do you damn your children? Have you ever damned your children? Are you greater than your heavenly father? If you being evil know how not to damn your children but to love them, how much more is your heavenly father true to his promises to you and your baptism? Okay, now that's, that's an admonition on the basis of, no, he damns me. No, then that becomes a serious problem. Let him speak the truth. So when he speaks the truth to a baptized child, he said, but I don't believe that. Then that's the problem. I have kids. They're, they're waiting for my class. All right, so, so we'll... Um, We'll talk about marriage and divorce next week. It's really great. It's, re it's part of this fourth discourse, and it's part of the same discussion. So I'm going to speak against the notion that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone as long as we don't get a divorce alone. Tune in next week.